are listening to the Diversity Beyond the Checkbox podcast. I'm Jackie Ferguson, certified diversity executive, writer, human rights advocate, and co-founder of the diversity movement. Last season, I talked with trailblazers, game changers, and glass ceiling breakers who shared their inspiring stories, lessons learned, and insights on business, inclusion, and personal development. So as we look forward to season six, I hope you'll enjoy some of my favorite moments from season five. And of course, if you hear a piece of a conversation that you missed, be sure to go back and listen to the full episode. So there are lots of ways of thinking and communicating where those people get left behind that have amazing things to say and contribute because the people who, you know, their natural inclination is to speak quickly, process quickly, are the ones doing the talking, right? And they don't give space for people who need that extra moment to process, to think through, to, you know, formulate how they want to say something. And organizations and in meetings specifically, you need to really give space for that because you can miss out on some amazing ideas, amazing innovations from a lot of your employees. Yeah. Something that I wanted to share that I I know a lot of, especially women go through today and and minorities, we already feel uncomfortable because people around the table do not look like us and do Mm -hmm. not sound like us. So we're already dealing with that. I have an idea and I want to say something, but I feel so intimidated by this table, especially if it's mostly men, that it takes me a minute to tell myself, go ahead and say it. You can say it. And then when we start to say it, people are so impatient because either you have an accent or you're taking longer because you're trying to translate. And that is what is discouraging a lot of, especially women from going into tech that yeah. we are not given the space that we need. At the beginning, it's not forever because with practice, you you, you become more confident. And right. that is keeping women out of tech and is making them leave tech early mm-hmm. also. And it's so important for those of us who are around that table to be allies and to be advocates for those who don't speak up as much, but to just give space by saying, you know, Elaine or Jackie, is there something that you'd like to add? Or what do you think, right? And sometimes it can be just as simple as that. So thank you for sharing that, Elaine. So Kelly, let's talk about your experience in these male-dominated sectors. What advice do you give to people who are underrepresented in moving into any sector or industry or business that, you know, where they're one of few or the only, what's your advice for them? Well, I think it's important to have a strong network of others Mm -hmm. like you to keep your resilience because it is wearing Mm -hmm. as this sort of, I would say, social transformation occurs. We're, I think in society in general, we're going through a massive social transformation So recognizing we're kind of going from one way of being to another, and we're in the middle of that in this this place and time, we need to have resilience on getting through as we make it to the end goal that we all desire on this issue. So you have to have that. You have to have allies, you know, inside 
senior allies would be a bonus, you know, creating that mentorship uh, dynamic. And in some organizations, they have employee resource groups, which are really helpful for, you know, getting a voice, a, l- a larger collective voice mm. to any issues that are of concern so that you can not only give input to senior management, but also senior management can benefit from your perspective as it relates to any product or service that they're trying to deliver more broadly to customers or clients. You said, you know, that's what you're really passionate about is the culture. But a lot of leaders make the mistake of focusing on recruiting diverse talent without laying that foundation of, you know, what happens when they arrive? Are you prepared to make sure that they're feeling valued and welcome in the situations every day as they, you know, navigate their, their work experience? And if you're not, then you're not ready to do the recruiting part without laying the foundation in your organization of what that looks like for them when they get there. So I just wanted to stop and and point that out because it is so important. That is such, such a good point. And so we have, you know, talent and representation, we have that culture bucket, but the next bucket is really our external community. How are we partnering? What are we doing in the community to make sure that that we're being thought leaders, that we're helping other companies who are trying to figure this out? And, And that looks like working with, we just joined this coalition that's around investing in women, wake women in tech, and, and how do we invest and make sure we have more women locally in, in the tech space here? It's like doing that external community work. And then the last one, and I think it, it ties it all together, and this is kind of a pillar that goes across, is data and accountability. You have to be able to understand and measure what's happening. And I mean measurement, not saying, oh, you know, how many people, like, what does our representation look like? That's, that's, that's one way to measure, but this work is more than just like measuring. You can't put it just into like, you know, representation numbers. It is truly trying to find those metrics. That's a lot of what we're doing now. When you talk about the belonging piece, like Mm -hmm. what are, when we talk to our employees and we do internal net promoter scores, what are we hearing when we're seeing people exit? What is that data saying? When we're looking at who's getting promoted or, you know, looking at pay equity, what are we seeing? Where are there there gaps and are there trends that we have to fix? And so that data and accountability piece, I think, is critical on all aspects, but especially when you're talking about that belonging piece to truly understand, you know, what the employee experience is. And I know many people are kind of done talking about the business case, but I will never be done talking about the business case because at the end of the day, there is a positive correlation between diversity and inclusion and particularly belonging and engagement, productivity, and the bottom line. Organizations are seeing that more and more over the past eight to 10 years in particular. And there's so much more pressure, Jackie, on organizations of any type. I'm now running a nonprofit, as you know, but Mm -hmm. I come from the corporate sector. Really, it's three drivers. It's it's number one, it's the talent that organizations are trying to attract, right? There's some data out there that tells us that 80% of job seekers are looking for organizations that care about diversity and social impact more broadly, more than any other factor. And that's a huge number. It's something that it's very important for us to consider. The second are clients or customers. Yeah. I mean, people want to spend their money and work with organizations that care about diversity and inclusion. 
because they know, right? They they want to work with organizations that care about it and actually operate in it, knowing that that's how you get to the best solution. Mm-hmm. And then thirdly, which I find fascinating, not everybody does, this is the numbers part of me, is investors. Investors want to invest in organizations that care about diversity and social yes. impact. And we know that for a fact, because impact investing as an industry is at the moment about 50 trillion US dollars assets under management growing at 25% a year. And so responsible investment is on the rise. And so if you're an organization and you're not paying attention to your talent, to your customers and your investors, that's gonna be a real problem for the bottom line. For one, we want to reimagine career and work how we've been doing career, how we've been supporting um, young people and thinking about career, um, you know, it's, it's expired. We've got to think about some more innovative ways to help them understand career is more than a resume and a cover letter in terms of preparation. And, um, and, and especially students um, from diverse backgrounds, racial, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, and the like, a few examples, we need to be able to have those students understand um, some of these socio-emotional impact that careers have, exposing yeah. them to career pathways that maybe they never heard of before, but if they're exposed to it early on, we change the trajectory of the choices that they make as one example. Absolutely. So um, it, it's that type of work, Jackie, that we're, we're really into. And I think my final point would be on the talent development and retention side, I'm working with employers. I am very passionate in uh, focusing in on manager capacity and capabilities. Mm-hmm. Um, and how do we start building knowledgeable, confident, competent managers, people, uh, leaders of people um, in organizations? Because I'm continuously seeing that that is the area of opportunity, no matter what sector or industry, to make sure we're building safe, healthy, innovative, and collaborative workplaces. Chelsea, you're spot on with that. You know, in the work that I'm doing, a couple of things, right? So if we think about the great resignation, which is occurring right now, it's because people are changing the way they're thinking about work and what's important to them. And that's every generation, right? This is across, you know, the our employment industry altogether. And so, you know, people are thinking, you know, what's important to me? What are my passions? How is this aligning with that? How do the values of this organization align with my values, right? And they're asking themselves these questions and making decisions based on whether they've got right answers at that organization or not. One of the gifts that I think I've just really understood in the last couple of years, it's really ground in many performing arts, sports, et cetera. High performance is a combination of hard work and recovery, where we would work our butts off to be the best team in the country at the end of the game. When your mind is like, I just want to stop, my body's tired. We had practice so that we had the discipline when it got hardest to continue doing our job. And at the same time, and I think LeBron James, uh, for example, sleeps 
12 hours a night. There's lots of study around this, that recovery is just as important. You can't just keep grinding. And the grinding has sort of a cachet right now. I think it's actually the wrong direction. High performance is a combination of that hard work and recovery. And if you're just as thoughtful about recovery, then you can be even better performing when you need to. And I think the pandemic and uh, the current state we're in is really pointing that out, how important recovery is, because um, otherwise we spend our time with Adam Grant calls languishing. I want to stop there because that yeah. is so valuable in our society today, because you're right. We do focus on, you know, oh, I'm working 60 hours a week every week. Like it's like it's a badge of honor. And, you know, in some cases, we do have those weeks where we're really pushing it. Absolutely. But understanding that recovery, especially for those that are, um, you know, have their own business, entrepreneurs, yeah. especially, right? Yep. And so, but the recovery piece is so important. And that's one of the things that we miss. And then we get to this breakdown point, Yep. Um, you know, and, and then we've got to stop, right? But how do we intentionally look at high performance from the hard work perspective and the recovery perspective in what we're doing? That is, that is really, really impactful. Jackie, I love this question, the importance of mentorship. And I want to, before we move into that, is also to talk about sponsorship and what is the difference and why is that difference important? Yes. Mentorship happens, you know, it happens so frequently. Sometimes we not may not even put a label on it. It's when we go to someone or they help us, they give us advice based on their experience or, you know, thoughts or that they know us. And it could be everything. And I think a lot of times mentorship can even happen on YouTube, right? I, the lock on my door, uh, you know, broke and I couldn't get someone to fix it. So I'm on like YouTube and here's someone teaching, you know, you how to replace the lock on your door. And so you could think oh, that's kind of mentorship. I'm not personally talking to that person, but they're giving me know-how. Yeah. But it happens, you know, so often we seek out someone that may be a long-term thing that, you know, we talk about our board of directors and it also may be a very short-term thing. And so it's a very, to me, is a loose term and it can apply to many, many different things. And it's how we learn, sometimes how we get support. Sponsorship. Mm -hmm. Sponsorship is the, you know, the, the, the supercharged version of that where, sponsor a sponsor actually makes things happen mm. they're the ones that they identify opportunities for us they're the ones you know the sponsor in a meeting when we're not there says you know what i think jackie would be a great uh, great fit for that role like let's make that happen hey um team have you met jackie because you should get to know her right mm. and let's think about her for this this and this that person says, you know, Jackie, I think this would be a great program for you. And when, you know, or a great role for you. And after this role, I think you'll be ready for X. Mm -hmm. Let's work on that. So yeah. um, I think about the, um, the sponsor as opening the door. They're pulling us through that door. And, you know, they, uh, there's that saying, hey, when you've made it to the top, make sure to send the elevator down.
When I think about the word intent, one of the words that I use almost daily is intentional. Yes. Because yes. when you're doing this work in diversity, equity, and inclusion, when you're trying to create the culture that you want, mm. when you're trying to make sure that you're respecting someone that you're interacting with, you mm. need to be intentional. Right. And so that word is so important. So I love the name of your organization because thank you. You know, in order to do things well, in order to do things right, you have to have the right intent and you have to be intentional about right. being mindful about it as well. A good recent example of that, Jackie, is this all the hubbub about Dave Chappelle's last comedy special, Closer, right? Mm-hmm. And for me, my whole problem with, with this special and a lot of his recent specials has been, what is his ultimate intent? Mm. So I think that, you know, what, you can agree or disagree with whatever the comedy, da, da, da. I think his intention was off. He's pitting marginalized identities against each other, and we need to be yeah. we need to be working together, not battling each other. And Agreed. I think I think he needs to take a look at his intent. He's yeah. a very brilliant person. He's one of the most educated, well-educated people in the world. He yeah. knows his history, but he needs to check his intent for speaking. Mm-hmm. If he does that, then I think that we would see better better results. And I hope he does. I hope he, I love that you go. I I totally agree with that, Omar. And and I love how you phrase that, actually, because I've been trying to figure out like what's been missing for me. Right. Right. Because back in the day, like I was the biggest Dave Chappelle fan. (laughs) And these last few specials have just missed the mark for me. And I'm like, what is this about? Right. And not loving all of the, you know, pitting the marginalized identities against each other. And I'm like, what is he trying to accomplish? But I couldn't put my finger on it until you just said that. And I've been having this conversation and not being able to get there. I'm really proud of that TEDx because it's already outdated. Mm. And I love that because it was such a pain point for me um, at the time. I did it in 2019 we were struggling in this country for the basic right to not get fired (laughs) from your job just Mm -hmm. because you are LGBTQIA plus, okay? Meaning an employer in almost any city in the land could just simply say, you know what, I don't like that person. I just found out they were trans. Mm -hmm. And we would have had no legal ground to stand on. Georgia was one of those states and I live in Georgia. Mm -hmm. So it pained me to think that I could be in Atlanta in this wonderful bubble, Mm -hmm. bubble of inclusivity. Right. But I could travel to one of my favorite cities, Savannah, Georgia, Mm -hmm. completely different. Mm -hmm. So it was really talking about the spirit of a city like Atlanta, Mm -hmm. Um, the heart and soul of Atlanta that I think was kind of birthed in the civil rights movement Mm -hmm. comes from a space of being inclusive for all. Yes. And, um, and I feel like that, you know, should, should obviously, you know, fit for all marginalized groups, you know, not just Mm -hmm. the Mecca for black folks, you know, and, Mm -hmm. um, and it has been a wonderful experience growing up in Atlanta, being black and a woman, and gay and LGBTQ, whatever you want to call it, 
it's been a great experience, but I know that that's just simply not how, you know, a, a lot of the rest of this country is. Mm-hmm. And so that's what that TED talk was, was about. But this year, a law got passed that finally gave us the right to not get fired for something so simple and so basic. So I'm ex- I am ecstatic that, that that TED talk is already outdated. <laughs> I love that. I love that. But you know, it's it's voices like yours that allowed the spotlight to be on the fact that this was a real issue, right? Because if you're not part of the LGBTQ community, yeah. you're not thinking about that, right? And you're like, well, of course they don't do that. Of course they can't do that. Right. But the laws on the books, that's one of the things that we have to do as individuals is know the law, right? Because we don't. We're like, oh, that can't possibly be, right? It should be this, right? But what are the laws on the books? And then what are you doing from a, you know, the standpoint of, you know, advocating I am an analyst. I'm in data. I love data. I really derive a lot of joy from being structured, mm-hmm. from being someone who measures stuff, from yeah. someone who tries to understand what all that data adds up to. On my passion side, I'm an activist. Mm-hmm. I'm very motivated and moved by things that I think are things in the world around me that I can help influence, that I can help move forward in a positive way and you know so with with both of those things i think my like that's my strive like from my profession and from my passion that's what i'm trying to do but in both of these cases i like to underpin that with my value of prioritizing happiness Mm. that in either of those cases whether it's activism or analytics i feel that activism should should be driven by joy and hope and not just rage at the injustice. And similarly, I feel analytics should be driven by joy and adventure and not just the clinical need for clarity. Because ultimately, whether it's your profession, whether it's your passion, if you're not happy doing it, or if it feels like a burden, or if it feels like something that actually pulls you down because you think there's so much to do, you'll get overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And it'll it's harder to then make, make progress because it you know, things shouldn't feel like work. <laughs> they should almost feel like a uh, second nature to you. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's something that I've worked very hard at prioritizing because I've, I've definitely been in those situations where my work or my passion almost got overwhelming where I was just, I felt like, oh, oh no, there's so many things to do and <laughs> I'm I'm not making progress fast enough. But now if I think about it, you know, I feel like I'm doing it for my own joy. And as long as I'm making progress, as long as I feel I'm having an impact, that's great. That's fantastic. You know, and I love Happiness Seeker because that's something that I always advocate that we have to really take by the reins and, and make sure that we're doing that for ourselves because nobody else knows what that means for us, right?
Let's talk about, you know, race from, you know, this is a topic that's difficult for people to discuss in general, right? And people often don't have this conversation or they're stumbling over it a little bit. You know, as we talk about topics like this or topics around race or racelessness, can you share with us some strategies around having those conversations? Where do we start with those? The primary reason why this remains a difficult and indeed tense topic for most Americans is because we are still insisting on operating within the framework of race ideology. If you if you are operating from a position of believing and seeing yourself as being racialized white or racialized black or racialized Asian, you are automatically bringing with that all that that race supposedly exemplifies, right? So whiteness has become a metaphor for being racist. Blackness has become a metaphor for being a victim of racism. There's something called the so-called Black experience, which is really people saying the experience of people in a racist society, right? Like the way that we talk about race has become coded and, and really metaphors for our way of speaking about racism. And this is why it's so hard to talk about it for people because we are accepting the the we are accepting the concept and applying it to ourselves and applying it to other people and then you know it we can be in our feelings about it so Mm -hmm. an alternative to that that would actually create more meaningful and generative dialogue would be to create a space where you teach people about all the philosophies of race Mm-hmm. You talk about them, right? You try to get a sense, get people to self-reflect and see themselves in whatever categories, because even without having the names of the philosophies, all of us holds at least two of those positions, period. Every single one of us. My family raised me to be someone who was of service to others, mm-hmm. and that could that's that's infinite that could be a lot of things and so i started working in this employment program helping folks find work and in that employment program the the people that we had the uh, most difficult time working with were those who had records with the criminal legal system right because they would go apply for jobs and either lie on their applications saying that they didn't have a felony and then get fired two weeks later when the background check would come back or they would be honest and have their applications thrown in the trash, right? And so at that point, I started thinking about how to subvert the criminal legal system, understanding that like the school to prison pipeline exists, the foster care to prison pipeline exists, the war on drugs is still an issue, right? Why aren't we doing things to subvert all of that, right? How are we meeting the needs of the people proactively? And how do we have an alternative instead of just like throw all these people in jail? And along the way, I found the word restorative justice. Um, mm. And it's kind of been, I mean, it started with a YouTube wormhole and then reading books and going to grad school, finding mentors, being annoying and showing up <laughs> at trainings, begging like, hey, can I do this for free? I don't have any money. I'm a poor grad student who's yeah. driving Uber for a living. and being in relationship with folks who are practicing this way, being this way, they taught me that, again, like my initial thoughts about this were like, oh, subverting the criminal legal system, which is important. But that's where I learned how these are community practices um, rooted in all of our uh, ancestry, right? And how can we acknowledge the like 
you know, indigenous folks here on this continent, right, practice these ways, they still have kept these ways alive. Um, and how can we continue to make sure that folks remember, you know, that this is our way of being that will help us be in right relationship? Absolutely. And, you know, just again, to reiterate what you're saying, it's about the relationship. It's about connectivity, right? And and it's so often that as a society, we're looking to categorize people and put them in boxes different from ourselves. But what you're saying in, in, in so many beautiful languages, right, is that we're all connected and finding that way to be connected gives us more of a accountability to each other. Thanks for listening to some of my favorite moments from season five. Be sure to take a moment to leave a rating and review and subscribe so you'll be reminded when season six premieres. Become a member of our community on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. This show was edited and produced by Earfluence. I'm Jackie Ferguson. Take care of yourself and each other.